The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So please turn in your Bible to Genesis 37. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, I believe, beginning on page 31. Page 31. <clears throat> wonder, have you ever been involved in planning a surprise party for someone? Uh, have you ever been one of the people who has kind of executed the surprise? You, you know that it takes a lot of work, doesn't it? You have to have a plan. Uh, you have to have a plan of what you're going to do with, with that person that you're trying to surprise. A plan maybe to get them home and get everybody there into that house or that location without them knowing. Cars are going to have to park on streets, uh, a couple of streets away because they know the people who are coming or they know their cars. They have relationships with them. You have to plan all sorts of certain details. You know that you've got to be away for a certain period of time. You've got to convince them that you need to do certain things so you can draw them back to that location. It all has to work out just perfectly. Everybody involved has to know what's going on, who's doing what, when, and where. For the person experiencing that surprise, it's only afterward, generally, that they begin to put the pieces together. Oh, you took me to dinner because you needed to get me out of the house. And you need to get all of my friends into the house. I think our experience of the Christian life, in the end, will be something like a surprise party. It, it's, a, it's a little bit of a trivial example, but I think that in the end, when we come home to glory, we'll be able to see, looking backwards, all that God was doing in the course of our lives. And, and how it, it kind of finally makes sense. And that He loved us so much that He was planning out certain events and experiences in our lives so that we could taste and see that He is good in the fullness of His love and grace. Something like that is actually happening in our passage of Scripture today in Genesis 37. All sorts of things are, are going on, and, and really actually the, the characters, the, the real people, in the stories and the events themselves, don't exactly know how all of it ties together. But God does, as the master planner. He is making sure that He will get His people all the way home. That He will deliver them from the, the dangers that are yet facing them. And He's going to use Joseph to do that. The, the book of Genesis, you'll, you'll remember, recounts how God is fulfilling His promise to send the Son and Savior of the world to rescue His people from sin and death. And most recently, we've been thinking about how God has been keeping His promises to and through Jacob. Joseph is one of Jacob's children. And the story from here on out is going to begin to focus on really the children of Jacob. Last week, you'll remember, we looked at Genesis 36 and the, the lost kingdom of Esau. And we saw how God's people needed to trust God to bring the triumph of His kingdom in His time and His way. And as Genesis 37 opens, we begin to look at the developing kingdom, and it seems to be a lot like Esau's kingdom. Or Esau's kingdom was filled with sinners and those who rejected God. And, and yet when we come to Genesis 37, we see that the small but growing kingdom in the family of Jacob is filled and marred by sin. In, in the people of Israel, we see that while Jacob and uh, Joseph's brothers have been busy with sin, we're also going to see that God has been busy carrying on His purposes of salvation. God overcomes and overrules the sin of His people to accomplish their salvation. 
And this comes home, I think, to our own hearts when we realize that while we have been working in sin, God has been at work to save us from sin. So here's the sermon in a sentence. You sin, meanwhile God saves. That's really our experience of this life. We have been working at sin and God works to save us from sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. The, the great hope that Genesis 37 presents to us is that salvation is not found in ourselves, but in God. In this chapter, God's hidden hand of providence and power is pushing His purpose of salvation all along, despite the sin of His people. Now, you, you need to know something about the big picture of the rest of the book of Genesis as we begin to step into this chapter today. Joseph, Jacob's most beloved son, is sold into slavery. This is going to happen kind of today and things are going to carry on. Sold into slavery by his brothers for some silver. He, he winds up in Egypt, we'll see at the end of our chapter, where he rises to power and he rules over Gentiles. A famine strikes the world. A famine that God sovereignly knew was coming. And he knew that he needed to deliver his people from. And he sends Joseph to Egypt to deliver his family from this family to provide bread for the world. Eventually, his brothers bow down before him. And so he proves to be the deliverer of God's people. And we see the beginnings of this great mercy of God through the life of Joseph here in Genesis 37. We're going to consider Genesis 37 in four sections under four headings. You can find a full outline provided there in your bulletin. But let's begin with our first point, the favor of the Father. This is how the story begins, with tension. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 5. Genesis 37, verses 1 to 5. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to them. Let's pause there. In the top and the tail of these verses, we see that Jacob is a doting dad and that those brothers, the brothers of Joseph, they boil with anger. We see there in verse 1, it reminds us, we've concluded that brief look at Esau's family. And verse 2 orients us back to Jacob's family. That phrase there, you see it, these are the generations of, it's actually a common phrase in the book of Genesis. It generally signals that we're now going to begin looking at the descendants of the person that's just been named. That's Jacob. And instead of being introduced to a genealogy like we were in the last chapter, we're immediately introduced to Joseph there in verse 2. We're told of Joseph's age, he's 17. We're told of his activity, he's shepherding. Like Moses, by the way, the author of this book. We're told of Joseph's relationships. He's a boy among sons. And the mention of Bilhah and Zilpah here reminds us of the rivalry that Jacob himself had cultivated in his own household back in Genesis 29 and 30. Bilhah and Zilpah were Jacob's wives, yes, but Joseph was the favored son of his favorite wife, Rachel. We're told there at the end of verse 2 that Joseph, he brought a bad report to his brothers, of his brothers to his father. Now, we, we don't quite know what this report was. We're not told the details of it. 
But the language is actually reminiscent of what we read in Numbers chapter 12, 13, verse 32. When the, uh, the unfaithful spies of Israel, you remember they went into the land, they spied out the land, they came back with a bad report of the land. Joseph is likely kind of bringing an unflattering report about his brothers. And this, this reveals that the conflict is already brewing in the family between the sons of Jacob. Jacob's affirmation and affection of Joseph there in verse 3 only serves to fan the flames. Jacob is really falling into the same old sin that his father fell into before, that sin of favoritism. Genesis 25 verse 28, remember, told us that Isaac, Jacob's father, loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob, he was committing that same old sin that his father committed. And brothers, I would just encourage you to recognize that we should not pass down that same sin as Jacob did, as Isaac did to Jacob, and as Jacob might even do to his sons. Do not pass down the sin of favoritism in your household. Pray for the grace of God to love all under your authority with impartiality. Now, you may be accused of playing favorites, but do your best to make sure that that accusation is not true. Carefully notice that in verse 3, Jacob, he's referred to as Israel. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Israel was the name that God, Yahweh, gave to Jacob at Peniel in Genesis 32. He renewed it again in Genesis 34 at Bethel. Moses, he uses Jacob and Israel kind of interchangeably. So we see that happen in the text. Same person. But one factor which might account for Moses' use of the name Israel here is that the name is likely tied to his role as kind of the patriarch and the head of the family. In other words, as the representative head of Israel, Jacob was establishing Joseph as representative, as his representative among the sons. That's probably what this coat of many colors indicates. It indicates a, a privileged status in the household. This coat likely had long sleeves. There's probably actually a footnote in your Bible to that effect. It might be a slightly more accurate translation, a coat with long sleeves. Still, this coat was possibly richly ornamented. It wasn't a coat that would be worn out in the fields, right? You need short sleeves to be busy working out in the fields. This was more likely a coat that was worn in something like a palace. In fact, King David's daughter wore a robe described just like this in 2 Samuel 13, verse 18. The coat indicated probably that Joseph was entrusted with some measure of his father's authority to really make decisions on his behalf. And we're also told that Joseph was the son of his old age. You see that there? That language was actually used of Isaac in Genesis 21, verse 2. Isaac was the son of Abraham's old age. And so Jacob probably thinks that Joseph is the one who will carry on God's promises of sending the Messiah, the hopes of the future nation. All of this is building, and it's what causes Joseph's brothers to seize with, seethe with anger. In verse 4, we're told that they saw Jacob's favoritism and that they hated Joseph. They hated him so much they couldn't even speak a word of, of peace to him. You know how you, you walk by someone and you say good morning, like even if you've got beef with them, or perhaps for some of you, you walk by them and you say howdy, right? You, you can still be civil because they'll carry on a conversation with them and be kind, but we're told here that the brothers couldn't even do that. They couldn't be polite. And I think just recognizing this interaction should cause us to search our own hearts. I mean, sometimes we are tempted to despise others who are rightly or wrongly escalated to a position of power or prestige. Perhaps a, a co-worker perceives, receives a promotion that you wanted and you're tempted toward hostility. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to despise others who are given a privilege that we do not have. 
but wanted. Perhaps a, a sibling is allowed to stay up later than you are. And you're tempted toward bitterness. Uh, sometimes we're tempted to despise others who have been asked to serve in the church in a, in, in a way that we wanted to serve. And you're tempted toward resentment. Let us all be aware of the sense of entitlement, a, a bubbling pride, a brewing hatred, which believes that we know better and we deserve better. Let us all beware the root of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble. Whatever is unfolding in our households, in our workplaces, in our homes, on our sports teams, in our church family, we must believe that our God knows best. Even if someone comes into a position through sinful means, you may not respond in sin. You may raise respectful questions. You may disclose what is right and righteous to those in authority, but you may not sin through hatred in your heart. You may not sin through malicious manipulation. You may not sin through wicked words. You may not sin through devious deeds. All of these temptations, they spring from a heart, a sinful heart. And in that heart, a, a sinful sense of superiority. One of the lessons that Genesis 37 teaches us is that we're capable of the sinful emotions revealed in the hearts of Jacob's sons. It's best that we put those sins to death in our hearts before those sins reach our mouths and our hands. If you think that things are bad in Jacob's house now with all this favoritism growing up and springing up, they're going to get worse. But what you need to understand, even early on in this developing narrative, is this. All of this sin is simmering in Jacob's house. It's going to boil over. But God knew it all, ruled over it all, and will overrule it all to accomplish His purposes. Sin will not stop God from His purposes of salvation. God will overrule and even use the unwise report of Joseph in verse 2. All of the favoritism of Jacob in verse 3. And the hatred of the hearts of Joseph's brothers in verse 4 to bring about his purposes of grace. In fact, God himself will stir the pot. That's actually what I think happens in verses 5 to 11. Follow along now as I read verses 5 to 11. Genesis 37. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. Now some have said that God is absent from this chapter in Genesis 37. But that's not at all true. God is present in the sending of the dreams to Joseph. In the Bible, dreams typically come from the Lord. And in the latter part of Genesis, we'll see that they actually come in pairs. That's what happens here with Joseph. That happens with Pharaoh in later chapters. The purpose of these double dreams is to communicate that the revelations are fixed and firm. That they are certainly going to come to pass. 
And in verses 5 to 8, we get Joseph's first dream. Notice how this incident is characterized there in verse 5. Joseph, he has a dream, he tells the dream, and the hatred increases all the more. If hatred is not conquered, it will conquer us. Isn't this what we see with Jesus and the Gospels? Right? Think, of, think of Jesus as He is teaching and He continues to teach. Hatred just continues to increase toward Him. The more He speaks, the more He's hated by His Jewish brothers. Well, consider the dream that Joseph reveals here. Joseph's brothers are out in this field, binding sheaves. Then the sheaves of the brothers bow down to Joseph's sheep. Now, the brothers are not at all confused about what this dream means. Uh, they know it means that Joseph is to reign over them. And they're indignant. They can't believe that Joseph would aspire to be to, to really the promises that God has given to Jacob. Right? That kings would come from Jacob's body. We saw that in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. Will he really be the king to rival Esau's kingdom? Like we just saw. They can't believe that Joseph would think of himself as a kind of kingly ruler. And a ruler over them to boot. All of this should make the reader wonder. Is this the promised son? The one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Well, the end of verse 8 tells us this. So they hated him even more for his dreams, for his words. Really, three times since verse 4, we've been told that they hated Joseph. And when you think about it, what they really hate is God's plan. These dreams are from God. Sometimes, what you really hate is God's plan, and the person that you're mad at is just a proxy for your anger. At God. Your hatred at what God is doing in His life. When you are stirred up, consider that it's perhaps the Sovereign Lord that you're striving with. In verses 9-11, to we encounter Joseph's second dream. It's a heavenly vision, right? The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. The 11 stars were Jacob's, Joseph's 11 brothers. Uh, they bow down to Joseph. Joseph tells his brother and his fathers about this dream. And he's not wrong to do so. Joseph is not wrong to communicate these revelations from God. God's revelations are meant to be revealed to God's people. Now, it's important to remember that what is happening here with Joseph is unique and unrepeatable. God is revealing His saving and redemptive purposes to the family of Jacob. These dreams are tied up with Israel's ultimate rescue from Egypt in the Exodus. The Exodus really becomes the redemptive pattern that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So much so that during His transfiguration in Luke's Gospel... Jesus talks with Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he will accomplish at Jerusalem. The point is is that you should not expect to have dreams like this that have far-reaching consequences for the saving and redemptive purposes of God. Now the last time Joseph shared his dreams, his brothers rebuked him. Who rebukes him here? It's his father, isn't it? Jacob rebukes Joseph. And again, the substance of the dream is not opaque. It's not difficult to understand. It's clear to everyone there. Like the brothers, Jacob understands that this dream depicts Joseph reigning over the family, including Jacob. The brothers' reaction remains the same there, hatred and jealousy. But Jacob, as the end of verse 11 says, kept the saying in mind. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He kept the saying in mind. Why? Well, Jacob himself knows that God sometimes reveals himself in extraordinary ways like this. Right? Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, was put into a deep sleep when the Lord revealed his covenant purposes to him. In Genesis 15, Jacob himself had experienced an extraordinary dream in Genesis 28, where God revealed his covenant purposes to him. Jacob rebuked Joseph, but he remained open to the fact that this may indeed be God's great plan. Jacob may have shown favor to Joseph as a father, 
But the truth is, is that God the Father has shown favor to Joseph, revealing his purposes in his dreams. The words, but his father kept the saying in mind, bring to mind Mary's reaction, right? As the Gospels open, Mary's told the promises of Jesus. What are we told of Mary? We're told that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. God is at work. He's doing something. Jacob's meditating on that. There are two fathers who show favor to Joseph in these verses. Jacob and God the Father. Perhaps Jacob was sinfully showing favoritism to, to, uh, to Joseph. But righteously, God the Father favored Joseph for his saving purposes. Jacob's hands might have been swift to sin, that sin of favoritism, but God had his purposes in the work of his, his household too. God gave Joseph dreams, dreams that God would fulfill. Joseph is God's appointed rescuer of God's people. They don't know it yet, but they will bow down to him, to this favored son. How? Well, it all begins with the father sending the son. This is the second point. What we learn in Genesis 37, verses 12 to 17. Follow along as I read Genesis 37, verses 12 to 17. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where they are, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Well, in verse 12, we learn that the brothers were pasturing Jacob's flock near Shechem. And when we hear the name Shechem, we're reminded of the disastrous events that happened back in Genesis 34 with the defiling of Dinah. Bad things happen in Shechem. Bad things are being primed to occur. Something dangerous is about to unfold. In verses 13 and 14, we hear Jacob's calling and commissioning of Joseph. Not only that, but we discover Joseph's willingness to serve his father and go on his appointed mission. And what we need to understand is that there's a certain texture to this text. Moses is actually connecting uh, Joseph to someone earlier in the story and to himself. So, when Joseph replies, here I am, that's actually an echo of Abraham's reply to God when, he told, when, when God told Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, when he tests his faith. What lays before Joseph is a, a difficult mission, a test, which will deepen his dependence upon the Lord. And the reply of the shepherd boy Joseph is the same reply that the shepherd Moses gave to the Lord God in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. When God called to Moses from the burning bush, Moses was then responding by saying, Here I am. He was commissioned to go and deliver God's people from Egypt. Though Joseph didn't know it yet, he was being commissioned to enter into a dangerous work that would require dependence upon God. Like Moses, he would be rejected by his brothers. But ultimately, it would result in the deliverance of God's people. Joseph, he's, he's brought reports back to his father about his brothers before. And in verse 14, that's what Jacob asks of him. And Joseph, he's, he's an obedient son. Joseph, he pictures the, the willingness of Christ our Savior to leave the comforts of his privileged place in his father's house and to come to his brothers. 
Like Joseph, he, like Jesus took, like Joseph, Jesus took the form of a servant, ready to do his father's will. And in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus speaks of the, he came to do the will of him who sent him. And like Joseph, Jesus willingly took on this dangerous mission to enter the world and to consider the welfare of his brothers. Think of what our salvation would be if Jesus refused to obey God the Father. Jesus was an obedient son. Indeed, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.19 that it was Jesus' obedience that would bring that many will be made righteous. Without Joseph's obedience, the family of Jacob would have never been delivered from the famine that was coming. Without Joseph's obedience, the story of the coming of the Messiah would have stopped with the death of Jacob's family. And surprisingly, I don't know if you notice this, but Joseph, he doesn't find his brothers in Shechem. Instead, he finds a mysterious man. Or, really more accurately, it's the other way around, isn't it? The mysterious man finds him. Do you see that in verse 15? And a man found him wandering in the fields. It's almost as if this mission isn't going to be accomplished unless this man gets Joseph's attention. This mysterious man just so happened to find him. The mysterious man just so happened to know where the brothers have gone. The mysterious man just so happened to know what they had to say. All of that so that Joseph could go to Dothan and complete the mission. Joseph, if he doesn't go to Dothan, then there wouldn't be deliverance from the coming famine. Beloved, do you, do you not see how the sovereign hand of God is in this meeting with this man? It, it's really possible that this man is none other than that nameless man that Jacob wrestled back in Genesis 32. There we were simply told that Jacob wrestled a mysterious, mighty, and nameless man. It may be that this is some ordinary man, but even if that is case, God directed him to find Joseph, equipped him with the experience and knowledge Joseph needed in order to complete his mission. Whatever way you slice it, God's powerful providence cannot be mistaken. God so superintends the experiences and the events of all of His creatures and all of their actions so that not one word of His promises fail, but that they all come to pass. Brothers and sisters, you can be certain that the same providence that was at work in Joseph's life is at work in your life. You are here today because God planned it and because God powerfully brought it about. Beloved, everything you experience, everything you experience, is no accident in God's plan for you. All of your life's events and experiences have been designed to bring you to Christ, make you more like Christ, and see you safely home to Christ. Joseph, he made it to Dothan because the divine hand of God was sending him to be the deliverer of the people of God. Yes, Jacob sent Joseph on a mission to see if his brothers were doing well, the flock was doing well, but God the Father was sending Joseph on a larger mission to secure the well-being of his father and brothers. In God's sovereign plan, the deliverer had to be betrayed by his brothers. That's what we find in Genesis 37, verses 8 to 31. This is our third point, the betrayal of the brothers. Follow along as I read verses 18 to 31 now. They saw him, that's Joseph's brothers, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. 
that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of the Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. These verses pair an emotional up and down. Uh, the brothers, they see Joseph, they plan to kill him. There's hope of a rescue, there's a fierce attack, a change of heart, a sale, and the slaughtering of a goat. And all of this is part of God's sovereign plan, as my church history professor once said, to rule over sin and overrule sin, all for God's glory and the good of His people. In verses 18 to 19, we see that Joseph, he draws near, and his brothers, they plan to kill him. And when reading these verses, it's, not, it, it's hard not to hear the echoes of the opening of John's Gospel. Right, John chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came to His own people and His own did not receive Him. Look at the scorn that the brothers have for Joseph there in verse 19. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Uh, more literal translation might be the, the Lord of the dreams or the master of the dreams. They're really actually mocking Him. Uh, they, they think it's laughable that they would bow down before their brother. And that he would rule over them as Lord. They have a premeditated plan for murder. They have a way to dispose of the body. They have a story to tell their father. They have a way, so they think, to bring his dreams to an end. And what they don't realize is that their actions will secure their bowing down before him in Egypt. What they don't realize is that their sinful deeds will actually be the means of the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. They think they're bringing them to an end, but they're actually going to fulfill them. God is going to make all of Joseph's dreams come true. No matter how swift our hands are to sin, nothing can stop the fulfillment of God's promises and plans to save. And every one of us should give ourselves up to this glorious, all-wise, and all-powerful God who deals so patiently and graciously with sinners like you and me. We see in verses 21 and 22, Reuben's conscience, it seems to be bothering him, doesn't it? He steps in, he alters the plan of his brothers to put him to death. Reuben, he kind of dials the danger down just a little bit by simply throwing Joseph into one of the pits in the wilderness. These pits were uh, likely dug to collect rainwater for drinking, for watering flocks, or for other purposes. We learn in the text, though, that there's actually no water in these pits. So if, if Joseph wasn't rescued, if he wasn't pulled out of it, it would have meant certain death for him. Moses tells us there at the end of verse 22 the reason why Reuben wants to do this. He wants to rescue Joseph and restore Joseph to his father. It may be the case that uh, Reuben is looking for a way back into his father's good graces. 
You'll remember in Genesis 35, verse 22, that Reuben, he actually wanted to establish himself as the household head, so he slept with his father's uh, concubine. Uh, He was in trouble with his father from that point forward. He may want to try to restore himself in his father's eyes. Reuben may even want to get on Joseph's good side too. I mean, if Reuben rescues Joseph, then Joseph at least owes him a debt of gratitude. This is the son that dad's going to set up as kind of the one who's going to rule the family from here on out. I, I might as well get on his good side too. Well, none of that comes to pass, right? The plan is established to throw him into this pit. The attack comes there, verses 23 and 24. And the action verbs in these sentences, they come right, one right after another. They strip him of his royal robes. They take him. They throw him. Moses tells us the pit was empty, right? There's no water in it. I wonder, does what is happening to Joseph here remind you of anyone? Perhaps the Lord Jesus Christ, right? On his way to death. They mocked him. They adorned him in a royal robe. They stripped him of it. They beat him. They threw him to the ground. Beloved, Joseph is a type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this because of the passage we read earlier in the service from Mark's Gospel. It takes the, some language from the, uh, our text here, the Greek translation of our language here, and it uses, Jesus uses it in that parable. He's trying to liken himself to that son who's rejected and killed. That father who sent his beloved son to look after his vineyard. Now the writers of the New Testament thought of Joseph as a type of Jesus Christ. Just think of Stephen in his amazing speech in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, verses 9 to 16, Stephen tells his accusers that Joseph was chosen by God but rejected by his brothers. And at the end of his speech, Stephen ties all of those threads together. And he says that like our fathers did with Joseph in the past, so you did with Jesus in our day. Just as the patriarchs rejected Joseph, so you have rejected Jesus. Just like you did with the prophets and so on. And yet, and yet, right? This rejection of Jesus brought about the salvation of the world. That's what's actually happening here. This rejection of Joseph will bring about their own salvation, though they don't know it. But do you see verse 25? The the callousness that marked the men who put Jesus to death, it marks the brothers too. I mean, look what they do in verse 25. They've just thrown him into the pit. And then they sit down to eat. These brothers are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Later on in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21... We're told that Joseph was actually crying out from the pit. And they sit down to eat. He's, we're told that the brothers, they saw the distress of his soul. They look down into the pit and they see their brother worried. And they sit down to eat. We're told in Genesis 42 that Joseph begged them. And we're told that they did not listen. No, they sat down to eat and they ignored him. Their hearts were overflowing with hatred. They probably don't even care about their father's affections in this whole process. This is the son that he loves. They simply want to gratify their hateful hearts. Their hands are swift to sin. And meanwhile, the story takes a strange turn. It really takes a a sovereign turn. At just the right time, they sit down and look up, and what do they see? A caravan. And we're told it's going down to Egypt. The brothers, they decide to make some fast money on their brother Joseph. Judah is the one who comes up with this plan now. Plans to sell Joseph into slavery. And in doing so, the brothers commit a crime that's punishable by death in the law of Moses. In Exodus chapter 21 verse 16, we're told that this sin that they commit here is, is to be put to death. And actually, this is why in days gone by, 
Christians have referred to chattel slavery as man-stealing. And that it was punishable by death. And the reason that this crime was punishable by death was because you were taking a man's life from him. Judah, he justifies this action on the, on the fact that Joseph is their brother. Let's do this. Let's do this instead. Because, I mean, he's our brother after all. I mean, the irony of this whole chapter is that they're not treating anyone like a true brother. The, the word brother actually appears 21 times in the chapters. But they're not actually acting like brothers. Of all people... They sell Joseph to those who are from Ishmael's line and from Midian. Those who were hostile to the people of Israel. And they were actually from the rejected seed of Abraham. It's most likely that these two groups, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, they had kind of intermingled. That's why they seem to be referring back and forth to one another. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers for a mere 20 shekels of silver. And does this not remind you of how Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his 12 disciples, for 30 pieces of silver. Moses is sure to remind us for a second time that Joseph is headed down to Egypt. And this reminds us that while the brothers were swift to sin, something else was happening with Joseph. And as Joseph proceeds into the distance, Reuben returns there in verses 29 and 30. He sees that his plan of restoring Joseph to his father, Jacob, has been foiled. He tears his clothes in anguish. That's a common kind of expression of grief. As the oldest Reuben's not sure how he can be welcomed back home. He was responsible for, for protecting Joseph's life, but he's proven to be a failure. How will he answer to his father? Well, the brothers return back to that plan that they established there in verse 20. Remember, they planned to say that a fierce animal has devoured Joseph. So in order to make that story believable, they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the road in blood. If they're able to convince their father that Joseph is dead, their betrayal will have succeeded, their tracks will have been covered. But before we move on, beloved, consider what has happened in these verses. The brothers, they cruelly attack Joseph. They callously sit down to eat. Their meal was interrupted by a caravan of traitors. What they did not understand is that their sinful actions of selling their brother would not only fulfill Joseph's dreams, but allow them to survive the coming famine and eat bread in the days ahead. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. They betrayed their brother, and God overruled their sinful purposes to save their family, to save them. God was in control of every action, every event, every person, every decision that was made in these verses. The brothers' hands were swift to sin. Meanwhile, God was working out His purposes of salvation. And our God has done the same thing in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, do you realize that? This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, Peter says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. I mean, do you hear what Peter said in those verses? Peter said that they put Jesus to death. They were responsible for their actions. Just like Joseph's brother were responsible for selling their brother into slavery. And he says that all of this was part of God's sovereign, predetermined, and eternally decreed plan. Peter sees that God rules over sin. And overrules sin for the salvation of His people. And just stop for a moment and revel in the goodness of God toward these brothers. I mean... Is not God gracious to these scoundrels? Is not God gracious to sinners like us? We ought not think that we should pursue wickedness so that God can work 
His wonders of grace? Not at all. Our hands should not at all be swift to sin. But we should be left in awe that God would overturn evil so that we might know eternal and endless good in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come to Him in faith today. To place your faith in Him. You need Christ. We, we all do. We're all guilty of the sin of hatred and anger. The, the sin that we see Joseph's brothers committing here, uh, you, you may not have sold anyone into slavery, but you've murdered someone in your heart through anger. And Jesus tells us clearly that anyone who calls his brother a fool is worthy of the fires of hell. When we sin against others, we, we sin against God because they're made in His image. And they're precious to Him. And there's nothing that we can do to earn our way back into God's favor. Salvation is a gift that's given. It's all of grace, marvelous grace. It's not earned at all. When we put our hands to things, we, we tend to mess them up. And, and friend, you can't be like Reuben and try to come up with some alternate scheme that you hope that God will be happy with. You, you can't be like Judah who says, okay, I admit it, I sold him. But I didn't kill him. Like, we can't say, yeah, okay, I, I sinned. But I'm not like that other guy. The standard is not that other guy. Whoever you want to make it up to be in your life. Some corrupt politician. Hitler, Stalin. Name your person. They're not at all the standard. The righteousness of God is the standard. And none of us have measured up. We've all fallen short. But friend, the good news of the Bible is that God has done something wonderful in Jesus Christ. God has so loved the world that He gave His one and only most beloved Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Right? God the Father sent His Son into the world on a mission, a rescue mission. He came to a people who hated Him. But He loved them and He laid His life down for them. Jesus died on the cross, bearing the full punishment of all of those who ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. Jesus' opponents thought that they had succeeded. Meanwhile, God the Father was working His purposes of salvation out. For three days after His death, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, thus conquering sin and death and accomplishing an exodus of salvation from the grave and securing salvation for sinners like you and me. And now Jesus invites everyone. He invites you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Him. There is salvation in no other name. So trust in Jesus Christ today. And if you want to know more about what it means to put your faith and your hope in Jesus as your deliverer, to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and follow Him in faith, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about this good news in Jesus Christ. Now the close of this chapter, it is glorious. For in it we see the deception of man and the deliverance of God. This is our fourth and final point. Follow along now as I read verses 32 to 35. Verses 32 to 35. And they sent the robe of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. 
All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Well, these are definitely Jacob's sons. I mean, they're deceivers just like their father was. They don't give too much information right when they present this coat to him. They dip the coat in blood there in verse 32. They simply ask their father to identify the coat of many colors. Does it belong to your son? They just kind of stop there. They're going to allow their father's imagination to fill in the blanks. And really, that kind of process is a form of deception as well. And as I said, these are are Jacob's sons. They deceive their father by means of a goat and a coat. And this is something that brings something full circle in Jacob's life. Do you remember how Jacob deceived his father Isaac in his old age and stole the blessing from his brother Esau? In Genesis chapter 27, verses 14 to 19, Jacob deceives his father by means of a goat and a coat. And the deceiver has been deceived again. Jacob, he was deceived by Laban. Now he's deceived by his sons. Learn from Jacob that the practice of deception does not make you uh, stronger against it. It actually weakens you. It makes you more susceptible to deception. Brothers and sisters, love rejoices in the truth. We need to get the truth so ingrained into us that we can discern when we're being deceived. But this detail... That Jacob is deceived by a goat and a coat is given so that we may remember God's saving promises will not be thwarted. Right? Jacob's deception of his father with a goat and a coat did not stop God's purposes of salvation. The son's deception of Jacob by a goat and a coat will not stop God's purposes of salvation. Man may deceive, and he may be deceived. Meanwhile, God will deliver his people in the end. Is there not great comfort in knowing that while we may be defeated by deceit from time to time, God never is. Jacob, he thinks that his son is forever dead. Great grief seems to overwhelm him. Like Reuben did before, he he tears his garments. He puts on a mourner's attire. He mourns for his son many days. Here Jacob had thought that Joseph, that he was the one. I mean... He was the promised one, maybe even the king that God promised to send him. He had dreams, after all, divinely given dreams to that effect that he would rule over his mother, father, and siblings. Jacob might have been tempted to believe that God's promises have come to an end. Jacob seems to be grieving as one with no hope. Right? If God's saving promises are dead, then there is no hope. His children, you see, all of them, verse 35 says, rose up to comfort him. But he, what? He refused to be comforted. Jacob, he commits himself to grieving for the rest of his days. Now, friends, it is good and right to grieve when God takes his children home. But grieving without hope doubts the power of God and the promises of God. And the last verse of the chapter tells us that we should not doubt the power, the purposes, and the plans of God. Verse 36 sounds a most remarkable note. Just read it again. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now just imagine how those words must have landed on the ears of the first readers. I mean, I almost imagine they gasped when they heard them. Meanwhile. What do you mean by meanwhile? Wait, Joseph's story isn't over? 
I mean, the brothers thought that the story was over. The fathers thought, thought that the story was over. But we're told that Joseph is alive. He's in Egypt. The dreamer is not dead. He's in Potiphar's house, in, in Pharaoh's house. He is that close to the most powerful throne in all the known world. What is God doing? What will become of his dreams? God would make Joseph's dreams come true. God would raise Joseph to power, becoming somewhere near the second in command there in Egypt. God would overrule the sin and wickedness of Joseph's brothers. God would use Joseph to save Jacob and his brothers from starvation, thus keeping the promises of the Messiah and the salvation of the world alive. But at that time, neither Jacob nor his sons nor Joseph knew that God had written a meanwhile into the script of their lives. Meanwhile. That's what I want us to think about as we conclude. Just that one word. Meanwhile. In some ways, it encapsulates the whole of the Christian life, I think. I mean, beloved, you can only see what is immediately in front of you. But God knows the rest of the story. With all of its events and all of your experiences and all of your emotions, God knows all of everything. God is busy working out the rest of the story. He's carrying on the work of His divinely designed meanwhile for you and the whole world. Your life is carrying on with hustle and bustle. You are experiencing cares and sorrows and burdens and blessings. You're rightly giving yourself to the duties God has called you to fulfill in your life. Being faithful in your workplace, perhaps teaching your children about the Lord, making a home, serving your neighbors, studying God's Word, you're probably constantly asking, God, what are you doing in this circumstance? It's really difficult for me to see what's going on here. I can't see how you're going to pull all these threads together. I sometimes can't see, honestly, how I'm going to make it. You know, Joseph didn't know that either. All he knew is that he was a slave in Egypt. All he knew is that he had been betrayed by his brothers. All he knew was that God had given him dreams and that he was supposed to rule. But that no doubt seemed to be impossible to him the day he arrived in Egypt. All that Joseph could do was hold on to the promises of God, trust the goodness of God, and be faithful where God had placed him. As the Puritans used to say, we can only read the hand of providence backward. In other words, it's only after it's all said and done that we can see how God was weaving all of the difficult and delightful details of our lives together. That meanwhile can only be told after all of the events of the story have come to pass. But you can be sure that God has a meanwhile. You can be sure of this, that God is ruling over all and that He will save us in the end. Your calling is now like that of Joseph. To hold on to the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ to trust the goodness of God and to be faithful where God has placed you. You can be sure that when God finally brings you home and reveals what He has been doing in your life, His meanwhile will be surprising and it will thrill your soul. You won't be disappointed. You'll be delighted. You'll sing with joy because you have a God who rejoices over you with singing and wants to see you know His love more intimately than you could have possibly imagined. You have a God who is at work 
And you can trust Him. Let's pray together.